Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. This is your host, George Muniz Gund. Today, I have another special guest on the podcast, Manisha Snoyer. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about homeschooling and Manisha's uh, platforms and a little bit about her work and her history. Uh, welcome, Manisha. Thank you so much, George. I'm honored to be here on your wonderful show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, so my first question I wanted to ask you is, tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into the homeschooling world. Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking. So I really fell into the homeschooling world by accident. I never imagined in a million years that this would be the area that I would be focusing on. But what happened is early on, I started my career in my 20s as an actress. And I was auditioning for a lot of shows. And like many young actors, I was not making a dime on my acting. And so I thought about, you know, what other skills do I have? And like many actors decided to start tutoring. So I ended up tutoring children in many different subjects. I taught French, math, SAT, SATT. And as I taught more children, the subjects kind of just layered on until I knew how to teach 18 different subjects. And um, it's, it's kind of teaching is a bit like languages where once you teach one subject, you can start teaching other subjects. And then I started also teaching in schools. So I taught in some very um, elite private schools and I also taught in public schools and I was a sub for the um, New York City school system. I taught in the bilingual schools. And so that really gave me a chance to see the entire spectrum of the education system, um, ranging from these schools that costed $60,000 a year to attend and were supposed to be you know, the best education money could buy um, to um, some really great public schools. But, um, you know, everywhere I went, it felt like the education system was completely broken. In, um, you know, in Brooklyn, I was in a great public school where a lot of kids had IEPs, um, and it was me and 30 kids. Sometimes there was a teacher's aide. I wasn't really pressed on the learning differences of the different children. I was mostly focusing on behavioral management. Um, in some other public schools that weren't as good quality, it was just basically people coming in and yelling at the kids all the time. No one seemed to be enjoying learning, and it was very clear that these kids were just going to leave school and go to prison, which felt made me feel really angry. Mm. And then in the elite private schools, the kids were just competing so intensely with each other that the parents were getting four hours of tutoring a day. People were crying because they were so worried about the SAT, and I just felt like this is a disaster. And so... At a certain point, I decided to stop acting, and I thought, you know, how do I want to make an impact in the world? And so I decided to focus on education, and I realized that in Brooklyn, there was a whole movement of parents who were starting what were called homeschool co-ops. Um, now, sometimes we refer to those as micro-schools or learning pods, which is essentially a group of parents gets together, hires a teacher, and then the kids would go to school two or three days a week and the rest of the time they'd homeschool. And I thought this was kind of cool because it was cost-effective. It was these wonderful learning environments where the parents, some of the kids were doing dance and art and math. 
happened. Um, and I was really surprised uh, when I started discovering this movement that the parents were very different than I imagined. They were not religious. They were not um, kind of anti-establishment. They were people in tech and artists and entrepreneurs who just felt like I can do better than what private or public school has to offer. And so at the same time, I was a host on Airbnb. And so that gave me the idea, well, what if I kind of started Airbnb for education? Um, so I would kind of a marketplace where teachers could start their own small homeschool co-ops and you could get around all the legislation of starting a private uh-huh. school by kind of doing this hybrid model. So I started a company called Pocket Class and that was um, the marketplace for micro schools. We ended up starting a lot of really cool educational alternatives. Um, many of the children that came to us um, did have you know, autism or ADHD or anxiety and or mental health issues. And then once they got into these tiny schools, they just thrived. And so that was really exciting. But um, as I did that, I kind of just became even more and more interested in homeschooling. And I felt like even with these schools, in some ways, they were kind of recreating school in a way they didn't need to. Um, And I was really excited by the fact that these parents were taking the power back over their children's education and really curating it to be whatever they wanted it to be. So that led me to start my second company, Modulo, um, which is a platform where families can find curriculum, resources, homeschool co-ops, design their children's education, get support. And I built a curriculum planner with 200 different archetypes of students, um, different special needs, different preferences around learning. Um, and, um, and so that's what it's evolved to today. It's just even much more modular than the original approach. And then recently I founded the Teacher Kids podcast and online homeschooling communities because I think that one thing I've learned is that just community is kind of at the core of all of this. And there's so much pain and violence in our world and school is one way to make community but it's created communities that are very clicky and exclusive yeah whereas what i've seen in the homeschooling environment is very inclusive loving supportive diverse communities and people are uniting around that shared value of education which makes the communities even more strong they're sharing skills they're sharing resources so community has really become my main focus Wow, wonderful, because I, and I think uh, I can certainly relate to the importance of community, but I think the right kind of community, because I have noticed um, that in traditional schools, like, because people talk a lot about, um, you know, one of the main points they use to defend traditional schooling is the, the community aspect, but from my experience, and from what I understand, from what I've gathered, the experience of other neurodivergent, uh, either autistic or ADHD or dyslexic students uh, or beyond, um, that we don't, we tend to not have like good experiences with those circles because it's very standardized and very molded. um, And they're usually not very accommodating. Like I remember, when I went, and I think it's, like, because I've gone to school back in Brazil, and then also a little bit here in the U.S., and um, both places, as far as I remember, particularly during grade school, um, 
it was really hard to get accommodations. I remember my parents advocating really hard for me to be able to use a computer. Um, and it was the school would not allow it. And it was, you know, considered a, you know, a very good school. It was a private school in Brazil. And like, um, you know, they, they called themselves like very inclusive and everything, but then they didn't want to let me use the computer, um, because they felt like it would somehow take away because I, I see that argument a lot about they say it would take away from the other kids or that they say that the other kids would need it because they're assuming that everyone is the same and has the same needs um so yeah and I've just noticed in general like in these circles like it's important to have like community around the same um with people that are doing the same thing. Um, For sure. Yeah, because cause then we all kind of understand each other. And it's the same way of like, um, of what I found just socially, like, because a lot of people talk about their college years as being like, I don't know, their high school years or their college years as being like, very like, where they did most of their socializing. And it's interesting because for me and a lot of other people, it was a struggle to socialize during those years because everyone else was so different and like following these other molds. And then it was when I discovered the neurodivergent community online and I started interacting with, um, not that, you know, like I've had other friends cause like I, it happens to be that I'm also an actor and, and so I've had acting friends as well, but even so like, I feel like there's just a different level of understanding with the neurodivergent community um, because we have such similar experiences and similar ways of seeing the world. And uh, yeah, that leads me into my next question. Uh, when, what, what was your first experience or contact with the neurodivergent kids and what motivated you uh, to to like come up with the system that best fit their needs? What were some of those some of those needs, and how did you like adjust compared to the other students? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think you know when I was growing up, I'm a bit older than you. There were a, a lot fewer children being diagnosed with learning disabilities or different needs. And in my own experience going through school, I felt incredibly isolated and weird and didn't really have any friends until I got to college. So I can certainly empathize with that feeling and the way that the school environment is set up is just really not conducive for socializing in that students are sitting in desks and they have 30 minutes of this incredibly loud recess. There's no type of room for anyone who has a sensory processing issue or needs to kind of step in or step out or thrives better with screen time. So I really want to acknowledge that. And, and one of the biggest insights I've had almost only recently is that there's this huge um, love of kind of a peer culture right now in our society that like kids need to be around their peers the same age which is like completely debunked by all child developmental psychologists and children need to form healthy attachments with their primary caregiver and that provides the foundation 
for connecting with all kinds of people. So I did want to mention that. So in terms of my own um, relation to this community, I mean, first of all, there's me, and um, you know, I think, as, although I haven't gotten a diagnosis, I connect most with being perhaps twice exceptional and having an imposter syndrome around that. But um, going, um, you know, as a teacher, often when you're tutoring kids, you're encountering kids who do have learning disabilities or might be diagnosed as gifted. So they are the students who are really not fitting in well with the traditional school system. So I, I encountered a lot of anxiety, um, you know, some kids are gifted or profoundly gifted or had sensory processing issues. And then once I was in the public schools, I taught in a lot of classes with IEPs. So you really see the whole spectrum, autism, dyslexia, ADHD, sensory processing disorder. And then, you know, and then it's kind of natural. Homeschooling is still such a bold choice that the people who are going to make that leap are really quite desperate. And it seems that the most desperate are children who have been diagnosed with learning disabilities. So it's natural that within that community, there's a high number of children who are on the autism spectrum, who have sensory processing, um, 2E, dyslexia, gifted, profoundly gifted. So that has been a lot of my experience. And then in terms of how I supported those families, during the pandemic, what I did is I started talking to a lot of families about their needs and I was trying to see what types of curriculum would work best with different children. And so in addition to talking to families, I also was doing a lot of research within the Facebook homeschooling groups. And you know, a parent would say, hey, my son has dysgraphia and sensory processing disorder. We're looking for a writing curriculum. And other parents would jump in and say, oh, my son has the same issue and you could try this. And then so I kind of started noting that. And then I just started doing a lot of interviews with different parents. And I was able to kind of narrow my questions down to five or six and always find a curriculum that the child would love. And so from, you know, it might be, okay, they're on the spectrum and they love nature or they have dyslexia and they love video games. They're gonna like this particular app. And so from there, I built 200 different archetypes and was able to build a curriculum planner for children who had learning differences. Fantastic. Um, what were like, some of the main um, things that weren't being like, even the kids that did have IEPs, mm -hmm. what was what were like some of the main things that weren't being, uh, would you would you say that weren't being really honored by the the traditional schools? Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, first of all, I just have to say, school is just so boring. So any one who needs any level of sensory input is not going to thrive there. Any child who is kinesthetic is going to have an extremely difficult time sitting at a desk and writing. Like, like just as an example, if a child stands up during a class and starts walking around the classroom, that child will probably get punished. But yeah. that child, that's actually how that child is learning. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, and your example of the computer, you know, I know not every student on the spectrum, but some students on the spectrum do really well um, on the computer, especially with video games. Um, and it's just really, it's really difficult to differentiate learning for a group of 30 students, but especially the group that have children with special needs. And, and I'll give an example. So I was um, the music teacher at this one school, and um, 
and I've always liked to make things a little wild and fun. And there was this one kid, a four-year-old, and he just could not stop moving. And every single day, the teacher's aide was, you know, sending him off to the office or whatnot to see if he was in trouble. And he was just, like, running around, never paying any attention to give everything up. And throughout the course of the semester, we were learning um, the different classical musicians and modern musicians. So I would, all of the kids would, I would have them, like, act out a story, and each of the kids um, were, you know, playing a different part in the story. And so over the course of the semester, one of the kids was named Beethoven, one is Bach, mm. and one is Chopin, and, you know, even someone was, like, Claire Schumann. And so we would just be kind of playing these games, and, and, and it was really wonderful. They were learning, and they're all preschoolers. And this one kid just was, like, not in phase at all, just running around the whole time like crazy. And so the last day of class, I decided to not really do an exam, but kind of test their knowledge. And so what I would do is I would play a piece of classical music, and then I would ask the kids to name the composer. Mm. And to my great shock, this kid that had been running around the room was able to identify every single composer for every piece of music, including Clara Schumann. And it was just, and none of the other children in class could get like 100% of them right. And this one child who I thought had just been totally tuned out the entire time knew every single one. So that, I mean, kind of gives me still chills thinking about yeah. that, but it's just an example of how, you know, different children absorb information and process the world. And it's really hard to get that one-on-one um, attention in a group setting. You can't, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um like wow that's that's just a great example of like showing how like if you change the setting i mean not only how you're able to tap into like all these um strengths that that students might have that aren't being and like very incredible strengths that aren't being um <clears throat> that aren't being seen because they're not really the students aren't being allowed to uh to flourish um and it's also like when you were talking a little bit about um like kids that need to move around um and and that aren't able to when it's like everyone when they have to like be in their desk um i certainly related uh to having that like also like wanting to move around uh and not being able to and then i actually came across something uh because i follow some neurodiversity accounts in brazil as well um and i just came across this tweet or i think it was a um a tweet or a post by a brazilian professor one day um and he was talking about how he had this one student that did poorly on an exam i think she scored 27 percent or something and um and then he like he asked her what was going on and she explained that she had hyperactive adhd and that she needed mm -hmm. to move around um and it was hard for her to like to sit still and everything and then he had a conversation with the entire classroom of, of like a conversation about neurodiversity um and and then basically there was one more like one more person with the diagnosis came forward and i think two more people that two more kids that um 
suspected that, or that identified with symptoms. Um, and then he made like uh, he made space in between the last two uh, rows of desks, so those so those students could move around um, during class, and wow. and then what happened is that. Uh, the that student that had scored 27 percent scored like 93 percent or something on the next exam so uh that like and then he said something like if that isn't inclusive education i don't know what is and (laughs) it was just this one like simple accommodation that he made i always like to to mention that story like even though I it's been a while now since I saw that but I was it was like wow it was um such a revelation to me uh because it was like wow like one simple adjustment that most people don't even think of making uh like they would ne- they would because most schools would like what I see is that they either force the 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 student to to be still, um, or they they separate the the disabled students, which is not only not helping the disabled students, but um, it's also not helping the rest of the students. Like another thing that I really liked about what this professor did. Um, is that he he used that opportunity to educate the other students on neurodiversity and different brains and different learning styles and like yeah i found that really amazing like so i always mention that um i like to mention that that example now because like that's when i started really realizing like wow like because i i guess when i was growing up it always felt like accommodations were like people made it seem like it was such a a big hassle to to provide accommodations and it's like and it's really isn't like it, it made me realize that yeah like sometimes people don't realize but it's just like even one little adjustment or it can can make a huge difference huge and i really wanted to kind of pinpoint that because that is clearly a very intuitive and highly skilled teacher that he was able to make that one adjustment that made such a huge difference but when you think about homeschooling you have a parent and a student and imagine how many adjustments they're able to make every single day to optimize their child's learning instead of just one thing a year and that's why kids can go so incredibly far yeah definitely yeah um what have you uh another thing that that came up for me um what have been like some of the main things uh have have you also like because i know you've worked a lot with neurodivergent kids um and then also like have you met any neurodivergent adults or uh professionals or other teachers and like what have been some of the main things that like especially in community and everything that you've you've been able to to talk about and learn more like from their from their perspective as well sure so it 
It happens that often the parents of neurodivergent children are neurodivergent themselves, and that's been a really beautiful thing. So I told you that I, I use the homeschooling groups quite a bit for my research, and mm -hmm. often um, what's wonderful is that the parents of these children are kind of paving them, paving the way for them to get a better education than they did. Um, and so I've connected with a lot of adults that way. Um, they've come to really understand themselves as learners and then apply those lessons to their children. Um, and I'll give just one example. Um, a lot, because autism does come up a lot in the homeschooling community, um, some of the parents have been um, very, um, they're very opposed to an approach called ABA, which is basically trying to change um, the child's behavior change them and make them not autistic. And mm -hmm. so um, instead they're using an approach that's honoring their unique strengths. So it's really cool to see that type of activism and awareness coming from the homeschooling community. And then someone who's had a big impact on me is Jade Rivera. She's mm -hmm. twice exceptional and she writes a lot about twice exceptional kids and just got her EDD and cognitive diversity. And um, it's she's also started a micro school and has been really active in supporting families. So that's really great to see. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's true. You know, a lot. I, I started realizing this over time also that most neurodivergent kids have neurodivergent parents. Um, I feel like a lot of them a lot of the parents also what I've been seeing is a lot of the parents end up discovering their own neurodivergence through their child um, and um, and I think it's really great because I've I've also heard a lot about um, ABA and this whole mentality of like fixing or like trying to mold children into uh, into like neurotypicals essentially and so i think it's really great that that more parents are are, are coming up with different like uh, you know ways of actually like honoring their kids strengths and just accommodating the differences instead of like instead of changing them i'm glad that's that's been happening more on a larger scale now because um yeah, it's, I still see, I still see so much pathologization just like out in the world. Um, like I saw an article, oh my god, I saw an article last week um, about, it was from UCSF, which is a very like renowned institution and in a progressive city, which it was part of like was so alarming that they had um mm. they came out with this article saying like how we could use ai to cure autism or something like that and i was like I'm, i've been even considering writing a letter to them or like getting in touch with other people too and and putting something together because it's so alarming to me that um there's still this this mentality and like it's such a progressive place like San Francisco such a renowned institution like UCSF would still be putting out this these kind of articles with this kind of mentality 
Absolutely. And if you really dive in, what you see is that the entire system is geared, it's geared towards blaming the student mm -hmm. instead of accepting responsibility for its own failures. And it might seem kind of like a cliche or, or not very, um, naive, a little bit naive to say this, but I have never met someone who I would consider a neurotypical student. Mm -hmm. Clearly, there are those of us who struggle much more in the traditional mm -hmm. school system. And my friend Jade really encouraged me to use the word learning disability because the student is not at an advantage when it comes to a conventional school setting. But if you're really teaching people well, you're honoring all of their unique differences instead of labeling their differences as problems and errors. And so I think that paradigm really has to shift. And you, you know, writing a letter to UCSF and, you know, helping build awareness around all of the amazing people in the world who would not be behaving in the traditional school system yeah. is really critical. Yeah. We want a vibrant, brilliant society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, I go back and forth with like the term as well, you know, because neurodivergent is what I what I hear mostly out there, but I think it doesn't um, it doesn't get the idea across sometimes, and it's a little bit it's like focusing on divergence, but it's it's I heard uh, I heard also neurodistinct which I like a little better because it's it's nice it's more like it doesn't it's just got a smoother um it sounds like it sounds better than divergent because divergent is like cuz it's not like a lot of times it's not necessarily like a complete divergence it's just a distinct mm. way of yeah. yeah, because in a way, if you you have figured out the way your mind thinks, mm -hmm. so it's distinct. Whereas other people who might not have figured that out yet would would be assumed neurotypical. But yeah. you've defined what you mm -hmm. are and how you learn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or like um, another one I heard is neurodominant because the neurodominant is like, um. It's not even related to it can it can be like not even the the individual but like the dominant mold of uh the dominant mold of of like how like a mold of teaching or a mold of of um uh like structure that is like that is um like the dominant dominant way that that like the dominant mold that most people follow um so i guess like deviating from the dominant uh but it's also because it's how people are how people are molded like how I mean the molds that people are are taught or conditioned to fit and a lot of times because I've been discovering that a lot of times like essentially there are a lot more neurodistinct people um than than I think than society realizes but it's like a lot of people they 
they come across as you would you would assume or interpret that they're neurotypical um because of like because they present like they they seem to fit these molds or like to um you know to to be a certain way but it's really because they're very high masking because they've been conditioned to and i was a little bit like that as well and sometimes it's hard uh if i don't know someone very well like they won't it they don't um understand like they're very surprised that when i tell them that i'm neurodistinct because or that i'm autistic or adhd because they've um because i'm able to i'm one of those people that is able to mask to a very high level and i felt like you know i've always been like a lot of my school years and everything and even until recently i've always been putting on this mask mm. um and so i've gotten very used to it but then at the same time it's very tiring and exhausting to like constantly like mold yourself into something else so then Absolutely. yeah so then i've been realizing that i go back and forth because like i know that um there's a difference in like the frequency and the intensity and like the ability to regulate certain things but there is in but there isn't really like one typical mold well, i mean there's not there's a mold but there's no like one typical brain there's no like that th no one's brain i feel like no two people have a brain that works exactly the same um we have a whole universe inside yeah. of ourselves yeah. that's so unique mm -hmm. yeah exactly um what would uh what would you say some uh, i i think we kind of touched on this a little bit so i'm going to ask you um what are some of the because you were talking about you you created a lot of different curriculums um and so what are like maybe a couple examples of some of those curriculums that you've <clears throat> created um and like um that are more like adjusted to folks with with sure. sensory yeah. so just to clarify i haven't built any curriculum myself actually i did create some curriculum a while ago for a french school but mostly i there's so many amazing resources that have emerged so mostly i've helped direct parents to the resource that works best for their child um so i'll just give an example there's a wonderful reading app called nessie and it's an online digital app it's really designed for dyslexic children it follows the science of reading and um, it's relatively frequent that children who are on the spectrum sometimes have dyslexia as well and that app is fantastic there's another curriculum called um, wild math and wild reading and it's all nature based so that can be fantastic for children who have adhd or sensory processing issues um i also love brain pop Again, it's a digital app, so it's very conducive to kids who like to work, to um, learn online. And um, and then uh, another one that I love for children with ADHD is Bright Star Math. It's all physical manipulative and multisensory, and that one is, is great. Um, 
Beast Academy is a math program. They have an online and a physical version, and I found that children who are gifted or profoundly gifted, and also children on the autism spectrum, just love the online version. The physical version, yeah. not so much. But it really focuses more on conceptual understanding rather than route memorization, and that one is another favorite. I see. Cool. Yeah. I also have a blog I'll share with you and you can share with your listeners um, called Cognitive Diversity and Homeschooling. And we've gone through nine different learning profiles and recommended a math and English language arts and complete curriculum for each um, archetype. Fantastic. Yes, I'll definitely be sharing that in the show notes. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you also, you mentioned uh, earlier before we started that you are... Um, I forgot the term you used because uh, that you're you're moving uh, that lately you've digital been nomad. digital nomad <laughs> yes <laughs> that you um, so tell me a little bit about like what that's been like like working from all out of these all these different places and then um, like differences that you've noticed in in different countries as well and in terms of like the education and the culture and everything oh sure that's a great question so even though i travel quite a bit i mostly work with australian families and u.s families and Mm -hmm. a little bit of families in the uk some in india um you know the education system in the u.s has really gone downhill it's very in a very very bad shape kids are leaving in droves classes are overcrowded teachers are leaving in a place like Europe, it's not that bad. Um, the teachers are very well trained, they're well paid, but you still encounter a lot of the same problems in these group classroom settings. Um, and, you know, I think it's almost universal that unfortunately we're not really leaving as many geniuses as we used to because we're trying to accommodate the system for the almost like the lowest common denominator. Like, how can we keep everybody about average? as opposed to really honoring people's unique strengths and helping them cultivate them. So I think there's room for a new kind of education system where parents can be much more involved in their children's education with the support of, you know, getting child care support and with remote work um, on the rise and, and then combine that with extracurriculars and tutoring. And I think that it's possible that the U.S. will be really paving the way for that. Um, because it's an innovative place, but also because the education system is so bad <laughs> that people have had to turn to other options. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's uh, definitely, I think it's, it's, it's good that there's, um, people are starting to notice more, like, these, these issues and, and what needs to change and, like, how standardized everything is and um yeah that's that's definitely encouraging it's because it's easy sometimes to like see how much still needs to change and then feel um feel like frustrated about it or like um oh my god like how are we gonna tackle this but and it's always nice to to see like the areas that that it is changing and then talking to people like you and that are you know that have 
developed all these um, alternate curriculums and styles and, and communities and and it is a reminder that we are that like change is happening and and uh, yeah that's that's definitely very nice to see and I imagine it must be it must have been uh, really empowering for you as well once you started getting getting involved with all of this and 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 seeing that that such significant change can can be made um, yeah have you uh, another question popped up in my head um, have you like since have you stayed in touch with like a lot of the the kids or families that you worked with like from early on and like how has that been pandemic and now they're turning seven or eight <laughs> it's and so I've kind of been able to work with their parents and help curate their education since they start started homeschooling and even uh, kids that I used to work with when I was in my 20s in New York there's a young woman who I'm very close friends with I was I think 25 and she was 10 when I started tutoring her and now she's all grown up and we just you know talked yesterday and now she's giving me advice about my wow. life and that's that's been a real gift yeah fantastic wow that's lovely um what would you uh let's see because um i might have i think we did touch on this uh well okay maybe, maybe i think this is a little different because i know we talked about um like the the issues with like the traditioning traditional school system but like even within the what would you say like within the homeschooling world what are some of the things because i know homeschooling has been around for a while but n not in not quite like in in this way and maybe it's been like in the past maybe it was kind of standardized as well like what are some of the things maybe that you saw in the homeschooling world that are still kind of standardized and that that what are the main things would you say need to change e even in the homeschooling world for it to become more more neurodiversity sure. friendly that's a great question so the biggest mistake that parents make is to try to recreate school at mm -hmm. home and it's natural that parents are really scared that their children are not going to learn what they need to learn and in many cases parents have had to homeschool they didn't have a choice about it their child was told that you may not be homeschooled anymore mm. because they were not you know fitting in at all with the environment and so parents feel like oh my gosh now i have to do everything the same as school otherwise they're going to fall behind i'm a failure but actually you know benjamin bloom did these studies on one-on-one -on -one mastery learning which is if you use a good curriculum a mastery-based curriculum meaning you're learning one thing before you move on to the next um you and you learn one-on-one -on -one. so basically and one-on-one -on -one can simply be maybe a student studying independently and getting support from their parent as needed you are going to learn 90 percent better than when you're in a group of students so what we've seen is that a lot of the homeschoolers who do well 
do an hour on math and an hour on English language arts every day. And that's it. Mm -hmm. They don't need to pile on a bunch of other stuff. And with that approach, they're able to go through the whole K through eighth grade math curriculum in six months. The learning is so much faster. And that takes me back to the beginning of the conversation when you're talking about making an adjustment. So rather than making one adjustment per year, you're making a million adjustments within every hour, right? To yeah. help optimize that student's learning so they can learn at their own pace. And then the other thing is that parents I really need a lot of self-care. And so I always tell parents, when you start homeschooling, you really need to come up with a good child care plan. When are you going to be with your child? And when are you going to get time to focus on yourself? And you should have at least three hours a week that's your time for your own project. And so that really helps. And then especially with children who have sensory issues or on the spectrum, just making sure they have a lot of downtime. It's possible that school is a really traumatic experience for them. Um, they might have gone in loving to read, and now they hate reading. Um, so just making sure that you might even want to take a break from any learning mm -hmm. or just not call things learning. And we often refer to this idea of de-schooling. Even several months or a year, children are just given space to do what they need to do. And then another thing to keep in mind is, like, just do the learning when the child is focused and happy. If they're having a bad day, you don't have to stoop to the schedule. You can take the day off. It's not a big loss. And your learning can happen all year round. So those are kind of some key things to keep in mind, especially if you are homeschooling a child who might have a more heightened emotional reaction to the world around them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. I know we also uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the the socialization and, and community aspect and um, how to how to like um, how to still how kids can still have socialization while being homeschooled. Um, so I was wondering like what are some of the main examples of like groups and such that um that are able to um have to to bring those homeschooling communities together and have have uh have socialization for the kids but um you know in 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 the community where, where we're all like focused on the same thing yeah that's a great so first of all i don't really like the word socialization mm -hmm. um i talked to i had an interview with a cognitive psychologist named gordon newfeld and he uses the term social capacity and so um this idea of kids hanging out with other kids the same age is something that emerged after world war ii and actually it's pretty unhealthy for kids to be picking up habits from other children and forming their attachments with other kids as opposed to their parents because other kids are going to abandon them the parents are always there for them. So I say, you know, make sure you start with that secure attachment um, and use that as the, the foundation. And then it's wonderful for your child to have other influences beyond you, not just other kids, but other parents. And so for that, um, what you would want to do is probably plug into a local homeschooling group. And if your family isn't religious, you would maybe want to look for a secular group or an unschooling group or Maybe you're okay um, connecting with other people who are religious. Um, and that's and I usually find like Facebook or Meetup is the best place to do that. 
and you know certainly you want to have a group that's inclusive so you might want to ask some questions about that um, there was a group that I just loved in San Francisco and um, I observed their meetups at the playground every week and um, there there was a there were a bunch of children of all different ages all different you know I mean you could tell people were leaving school because something was not right when there was a child there who was transgender quite young there was also another student who was a bit older and very very um uh, you know on the autism spectrum but i think definitely i would describe as someone who would have difficulty interacting socially mm -hmm. and it was so beautiful to watch this group interact because there was the playground and then there were adults kind of sitting on the sidelines having their picnic having snacks together and I watched this child with autism, and he would basically kind of circle around the group of kids playing, and then every now and then go in, chat with someone, go back out, circle around, go talk to a parent. And I felt like he was really relating in a way that felt healthy and good for him, and without being pushed into a situation that felt uncomfortable. And I just, I'll never forget that image, because I felt like that's the ideal yeah i like that that makes a lot of sense um and i it does remind me a little bit of how earlier like you know early in school um i think this was also when i was living in brazil but i'm sure it, it happens here as well um where i remember i was in second grade and i was in the classroom and it was recess time and um you know, a lot of times during recess, you know, because I didn't, I didn't feel like I fit in very much with the other kids. I liked to maybe just hang out in the classroom or maybe I would go outside and hang out a little bit, but like on my own maybe. And I had, um, maybe, you know, I would talk, there was one person, one other kid that I would talk to, or maybe like, uh, one of the hall monitors or the employees there that I would talk to and, and maybe there was this, and I think there was this one time that I stayed in the in the classroom and I was like I talked to my my teacher a little bit or something or maybe I was just in the classroom just kind of decompressing and I remember there was like this concern from my teacher that she was like oh well don't you want to go uh, hang out with the other boys or something and I was and I remember feeling like no I because they just I didn't fit in with them so I was just like no I'm, I'm okay um yeah and 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 then it made me realize how there is like such this like strong there's kind of a pressure from from an early age to to like make a lot of friends and like have like have this this social group or whatnot but i found that and i think this is also like the way that a lot of um autistics naturally socializes but i've i've found that i i do a lot better with like one-on-one -on -one, with like getting to know people one-on-one -on -one. um and i think it 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 builds deeper connections as well like because for me um groups are really like big group gatherings can be really stressful because oh, yeah. with the sensory stuff especially amongst other things but like the main thing i would notice is that 
I'm trying to keep up with everyone and what everyone is saying and what the conversation is. And it feels like the conversation is changing so fast. And this can also be like, um, it can also be hard to, to, to adjust if you have ADHD because then you're like, you know, you're having to keep track of all this. And then something, what would happen too, is something would pop up in my head. And I really wanted to, to talk about that subject. And I couldn't just like freeze and talk about that one subject with that one person because the conversation is always moving and it's just so much going on at the same time. And like, I, because I know that for some people, like they do better in big groups and, and that's good. But then it's like, for me, I was like, wow, I really need, I could really use like some one-on-one -on -one time with each one of these folks. And, um, and then, oh my God. And then like we build these great connections. And so I guess a lot of times if you're kind of like quieter or you're not engaging so much in a group, people will kind of assume another thing is people will assume that you're non-social or that you don't yeah. want to talk to anybody but it's more like, and I would always appreciate it because it would happen. And I was lucky that a lot of times, like other people, you know, the ways that I built great friendships, I think I've had at least maybe two or three friendships that started this way was that the other person would come up to me and say something and we would just kind of start talking one-on-one -on -one and like sharing experiences or relating to something or such. Um, and then that we, we would build that great connection. So yeah, that definitely the whole, like, you know, the concept of, of what they call socialization, but you know, the, the way it's like, the way it's thought of and it, the expectations and everything and, and how it's like, how individual connections are, are much more important. That's really, um, been something I noticed too yeah yeah, yeah um, well those are pretty much all the questions I have for you today uh, I know we're at about one hour yeah and I just wanted to kind of say about one thing you said earlier about matching I think that for all of us it's really a lifelong pursuit to try to live as mm -hmm. our true self and it's so exhausting to yeah. fake. And sometimes as kind of naturally weird people mm -hmm. <laughs> like me, um, we have a gift that we feel more keenly when we're not in our truth. And so in a way it can accelerate us, accelerate us towards yeah. that, which is really the best way to live in yeah. our truth. So I hope that you will continue to find ways and communities where you can be your full self yourself thank you yeah it's been like especially the last couple of years it's been really great like discovering like um the neurodivergent community and i even you know joining um support groups i started joining support groups for like with other autistic people lately and um just like it, it's like really I, I feels like I've found like my people. I found like the people that 
are most aligned with and it's it's very non-forced it's also easier to unmask mm -hmm. when it's a more like a smaller group or, or more like intimate one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one. um and it's it's a lot less forced yeah because i'm not like forcing myself to fit into a, a, a group and i can actually just and like yeah i can see how like especially at early ages this is so important to like really pause and be like do i need to do things this way or does my child need to do things this way and and what if we do things this other way um so yeah all, all of that awesome. yeah yeah um well thank you again for coming on um thank this, you so much yeah. george it's been a really beautiful conversation yeah. i i'm so happy that we connected and can't, can't wait to to see what you do next <laughs> yeah thank you yeah um i will i will be in touch i'll i'll uh i'll be sharing the the links for the resources we mentioned uh in the show notes and uh thank you once again everyone for listening um i hope you enjoyed this episode uh thank you once again manisha and uh, i'll see you next time